From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Anthony Aldave and Vishal Janji at the 2016 World Ophthalmology Congress. So the first question is, why would you, or when would you ever think about it as a primary corneal procedure? First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you. Speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the World Ophthalmology Congress meeting in Guadalajara, Mexico. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Anthony Aldave on keratoprosthesis as primary surgery and Vishal Janji on surface ablation for high myopia. I'm here with Tony Aldave. Tony, we think, I think, of Capro uh, as the this, this sort of last resort, the sort of final step, uh, typically once a, a patient's been through a, through a number of surgeries, that was not at all what the subject of your talk was on. It was looking at outcomes of K-Pro for people who've had K-Pro as their, their primary corneal surgery. Can I get you to discuss what your, your talk was on and what sort of comparative measure, I, I can't picture what, what, what sort of of, of comparison you could possibly do in, in this context. What comparisons you presented? Sure. Well, the, as you said, the talk was on KPRO as a primary corneal procedure. And as you said, the most common indication, almost every series published on the Boston Keratoprosthesis, the most common indication is repeat corneal transplant failure. So the first question is, why would you, or when would you ever think about it as a primary corneal procedure? And it's usually in a patient who has coexistent corneal opacification with limbal stem cell deficiency. Because in that case, a straight PK would really not be an option because it would not address the limbal stem cell failure. Right. So in patients with unilateral disease, uh, a graft from the healthy eye to the diseased eye together with a corneal transplant would be an option. For patients with bilateral disease, a, using a living-related or cadaveric donor would be an option or taking oral mucosa or a keratoprosthesis. And so my subject was looking at these patients in whom we do the Boston Capro as the first procedure. Do they do as well long-term as those patients who have had multiple failed transplants for whom we know the outcomes are typically reported to be the best? And, and how, how large was your, your study group? And, and what did you find, Tony? Sure. So my series was cases I've performed over approximately eight to nine-year span. It was about 130 to 140 uh, eyes, uh, about 170 procedures in those eyes. 
And we looked at the group having the KPRO as the first procedure, which was about 30 or so procedures, versus those who had had a prior PK. What we found is interesting. As far as vision, looking at vision at one year, two years, every year out to about seven years, a higher percentage of eyes in the group having the KPRO as the first procedure had 2,200 or better vision compared to eyes with prior PK. The difference is not statistically significant, but it was interesting that those eyes saw better. I looked at the data further to try to explain that is because we found a significant difference in the instance of glaucoma. The eyes with the KPRO as the first procedure had a much lower rate of glaucoma. It's really interesting. It was. And the question is, is it because the indications are different and when you're doing a KPRO as the first procedure? Or is it because doing multiple transplants leads to anterior segment scarring, angle closure, and then secondary glaucoma? And I believe it's probably some of both. So I think in many eyes, our study and other studies would suggest maybe you should do a K-PRO as a first procedure if you know that a PK is going to have a low chance of surviving and that patient may be at increased risk then for developing glaucoma. So how, how have these findings affected the, the way I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you, how, how do these findings affect your, your, your practice? But the, the patients who wind up in that decision branch point are probably very, very few people. Right. So what I'm going to ask you is how you look at KPRO as a primary option when you're at least going through this thought process. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I like to educate my patients. I like to tell them what are the options. If you do have limbal stem cell deficiency and corneal pacification, I give them in layman's terms, but give an idea. We can take tissue from the other eye if it's healthy, which is usually what I prefer. I usually do not do a KPRO for a patient with unilateral stem cell disease. They're better off having a ocular surface procedure from the other eye. So we're really talking about bilateral stem cell deficiency. And I tell them we can either take tissue from a relative, somebody who's deceased, take, consider it from inside, taking tissue from inside the mouth, or we can do an artificial corneal transplant. I tell them the pros and cons. I tell them you'll probably have better vision with a keteroprosthesis, but because it's an intraocular procedure, the risks are higher. And here are the risks. In our series, we found that none of the patients developed anophthalmitis, but we do see patients having increased risk of epithelial defects, corneal melting, infectious keratitis, et cetera, which obviously can be sight-threatening. So let the patient decide whether they want the higher risk, if you will, high-reward keratoprosthesis or an ocular surface procedure that may not restore, that give them the same level of vision, but has probably a lower instance of some of these more severe complications. Uh, really, really interesting stuff, Tony. I mean, it's Wonderful that, 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 you've, that you've done this study, that you've brought this here. Uh, I want to thank you for being so very generous with your time with us today. Thank you very much. I'm here with Vishal Janji. Vishal, you have a wonderful talk that you're giving. You're looking forward to it very much. You're discussing some of the considerations for PRK in the context of high myopia. Now, before we get to what some of these special issues are, let me just get you to define where high myopia begins. All right. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thanks for having me here. Um, I certainly agree this is a very important topic, especially in our context. We see uh, a lot of uh, high myops in our setting back in Hong Kong and China. So we define high myopia as uh, patients with spherical equivalent of uh, six diopters or, or higher than that. Uh, in all these cases, we always give them various options. So my talk tomorrow is going to be uh, on uh, an exciting thing, which is surface ablation. I know it's an old topic. But now it's, it's coming up back again, uh, especially in cases with very high myopia. So what, what are some of the 
considerations, uh, and, and I'm not talking so much about wound healing, I'm talking about things like the biomechanical changes uh, that occur in these eyes when you're doing ablations that are higher than <clears throat> we, we were routinely doing for surface ab ablations. So um, there, there are now a bunch of studies that have shown that uh, the change in ocular biomechanics, um, it's quite different when we do incisional surgery such as LASIK. Excellent work that was published from back in the UK, uh, which has shown that if you, as you go deeper in terms of flap thickness, the biomechanics, the, 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 it, they become worse, uh, which is not an issue in, in PRK because there's no flap at all. Um, and we have actually shown um, in data published in ophthalmology uh, a couple of years back that when we looked at the posterior corneal changes over a period of one year, say starting from week one, month one, month three, six months, and in 12 months, the changes uh, in posterior cornea, the fluctuations are way higher in LASIK as compared to cases with advanced surface ablation or PRK in high myopia. That's interesting because, you know, there, 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 there have been relatively recent studies showing the uh, structural importance of, of Bowman's with regard to the stability of the of the, the, the cornea afterwards. And even though Bowman's is largely uh, preserved with LASIK, all of the, the, the sort of basket weave fiber patterns being cut through when you make the uh, flap, but you're still ablating the most structurally important part of the of the cornea, but you're finding that it's more stable uh, than LASIK with these deeper cuts. Well, I agree with this is with you. This is this is a really interesting thing to look at, and now with the advent of smile uh, surgery. Uh, sorry, I'm going to change the topic a little bit because we are talking about incisions here. We are now uh, 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 observing that. Even when we compare flex and smile, the difference is in the, in the incision size. The changes in terms of biomechanical properties of the eye, they are way less in smile as compared to the, the flex surgery. So I'm sure the incisional surgeries, uh, well, if you talk in, in, in the same context here, LASIK and PRK, there's a huge difference in, in terms of the change in biomechanical properties that is induced by one of these surgeries. But the relevance here is that, that, the, that the preservation of the tissue that you're not ablating and not compromising uh, with an incision, you're demonstrating that uh, that these eyes, even with the higher treatments, are stable post-operatively. Post what about the, 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 the posterior cornea? This is something else that you looked at. Yeah, so the, as I was mentioning, the posterior corneal changes, we were really um, interested in, in looking at this because we actually found that most of our patients, the PRK patients, one year down the line, the rate of regression and the fluctuations from sort of day one, from sort of week one to year one, they were, they were very minimal as compared to LASIK eyes. And we are talking about real high myopia here. So something more than minus eight, minus nine, minus 10 as well. So all these eyes, they, in terms of variance of post-operative MRSE, the manifest refraction, it was way less in PRK. And then we have more data which is under review now, in which we will so show that if we, when we look at these eyes, sort of longitudinal evaluation, PRK in terms of safety and efficacy is as good as LASIK, but the variance of MRSE longitudinally over a period of one year is very less, significantly less, if I may say, say that, as compared to LASIK eyes. Oh, that's really, really interesting. Now, with these higher treatments, what is your mitomycin protocol? Interesting. Well, um, 
So we we started um, using mitomycin C at a really uh, low dose. I would say recommended dose, 12 seconds. But we found a high incidence of haze in these eyes, in Chinese eyes. Uh, in the in high myopia cases, we actually uh, we don't hesitate to use mitomycin C 0.02 percent for up to 60 to even 90 seconds. Really? Yes, yes. In these cases. Um, uh, we have follow-ups for about seven years now in a few cases. They're doing excellent. They're fantastic. Now, it's not that PRK ever fell out of, out of favor. I think that what has changed and then changed back is where we sort of draw the line between a surface treatment uh, and an incisional treatment of, of, of some, some sort. Where, how high is too high for, for PRK? Well, um, so... We we do cases up to minus ten diopters in our practice, and these cases have been doing really well. We we sort of give an option of uh, getting a fake IOL of, to patients who are minus eight or higher than that. And of course, we all know here there are issues uh, with uh, fake IOLs in terms of cost and, and surgical complications, possible surgical complications. So these patients, majority of the patients, when given an option of uh, LASIK PRK and uh, fake IOLs with high myopia, they choose uh, surface ablation over the other two surgeries. This is really, really neat stuff. Obviously, this is a super, super relevant topic. I want to thank you very much for, for bringing this to us and being so very generous with your time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Anthony Aldave is professor of ophthalmology at the Jules Stein Eye Institute in Los Angeles, California. Vishal Janji is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Science at the Chinese University of Hong Kong in Hong Kong. Ask questions of Dr. Aldave, Dr. Janji, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.